Good afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to today's Ask the Expert webcast. Your active preschooler, could it be ADHD? Today we welcome Dr. George DePaul, a professor of school psychology in the Department of Education and Human Services at Lehigh University and a leading researcher in young childhood ADHD. The Ask the Expert webcast series is presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD, which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. A recording of today's broadcast will be available on the National Resource Center on ADHD's website, Help for ADHD, in about two days. To view the recording sooner, please follow the same link you used to join us today. The recording will be available about 30 minutes following our presentation by using that link. We may not be able to get to all of your questions today. If you would like to talk with a health information specialist for further information on today's topic, please contact us Monday through Friday from 1 to 5 p.m. at 1-800-233-4050 or online at www.help4adhd.org. Finally, following today's webinar, a brief survey will appear on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to let us know what you think and how we can better serve the ADHD community through the Ask the Expert webcast series. It is a privilege to introduce today's guest, George DePaul. Dr. DePaul has provided clinical services to children with ADHD and their families, as well as consulting with school districts regarding the management of students with ADHD. He is the author or co-author of more than 190 journal articles and book chapters related to ADHD and pedi pediatric school psychology, and he has published nine books and two videos related to the assessment and treatment of ADHD. Dr. DePaul is a former associate editor of the School Psychology Review. He was School Psychologist of the Year in Pennsylvania, the recipient of a Senior Scientist Award from the American Psychological Association, and was named to the Chad Hall of Fame. For those of you who would like to ask Dr. DePaul a question following his presentation, written questions can be submitted in the questions box on your GoToWebcast toolbar, as indicated by the red arrow shown in the slide. All questions are moderated, and we will get to as many as possible during the question and answer portion of the webcast. Again, we are very pleased to welcome today's expert, Dr. DePaul, if you would like to begin, please. Thank you, Karen. Uh, and good afternoon, everyone. I uh, appreciate everyone's interest in this topic, and, and it's a, certainly a pleasure to be able to talk to you this afternoon about um, ADHD in preschoolers. Uh, so before we get to, to your questions about that topic, I wanted to give you some, some background information in terms of uh, what ADHD looks like in young children, uh, uh, diagnos diagnosis and assessment procedures that um, uh, may be helpful for identifying young kids with ADHD, um, as well as, as talking about some of the challenges of diagnosis in this age group, and then finally focusing on treatment strategies that have been uh, studied uh, for, this, uh, for this population. So um, you know, as a reminder, I'm sure all of you are fully aware of the diagnostic criteria for, um, for ADHD. Uh, and those same criteria, of course, apply for young children. And so we're looking at young children who have significant problems with inattention and or hyperactivity, impulsivity. 
Um, the interesting uh, thing is that uh, there have been a number of longitudinal studies that have been conducted over the past few decades that have followed young kids, uh, three- to five-year-olds, who have been identified with significant ADHD symptoms at that age and then followed them longitudinally through elementary school, secondary school, and beyond. Uh, and it's pretty clear that the ADHD symptoms tend to be chronic for at least half of these young children, um, uh, even going back to Susan Campbell's uh, early work in the, in the 1990s, and then more recently uh, looking at some of the studies that John Levine and his colleagues have conducted, as well as um, Ben Leahy and his colleagues. And, and actually that number of 50% is, um, is quite a bit higher in more recent studies uh, because those studies have really applied fairly stringent criteria um, in identifying young kids with ADHD. And it, it seems that if one does a, a thorough assessment uh, and identifies ADHD in this age group, that uh, chances are it's going to be uh, chronic uh, to some degree uh, throughout the lifespan. So it's not something that they're going to outgrow uh, for the most part. Uh, it is something that parents and teachers are going to have to support them with um, you know, over the long term. Uh, in terms of prevalence of uh, ADHD in young kids, we don't have a lot of great data uh, on that, but uh, the data that are available would indicate that at least 2%, maybe upwards of 4% of three- and four-year-olds uh, may be diagnosed with ADHD, and uh, clearly there may be others uh, in the community who are not being diagnosed at this point who, who do, in fact, have ADHD. So the, the prevalence figures are a, a little bit lower than the percentage that you see in elementary uh, and secondary school, but um, not that, not substantially lower. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's roughly in that two to five percent range. Uh, the, the concerning point with regards to ADHD symptoms in young kids is that, um, similar to older children, these symptoms are associated with significant behavioral and academic impairment. Uh, the idea that um, ADHD symptoms in young kids may be benign or uh, not all that debilitating is, is, um, has really not been borne out by empirical studies. In, in fact, it's the opposite. Uh, these are children who are, um, depending on the measure that you look at, at least one to maybe two standard deviations uh, below their peers or behind their peers with regards to behavioral control as well as academic skills. Um, and just to highlight two things here related to impairment, one is that uh, some recent studies have shown that um, preschoolers uh, and pre-kindergartners are at uh, higher risk for being expelled from school settings than, than older kids. Uh, they don't have the same protections um, that uh, elementary and secondary school students have with regards to expulsion. Uh, and um, as a result, uh, the, the rates of expulsion are... are um, are, are really sobering in, um, uh, in the preschool population for kids with behavior difficulties, including ADHD. And I know in some of the research studies that we've conducted at Lehigh University, where I'm, where I'm at, um, where, where we've recruited preschoolers into studies, uh, I can't give you an exact percentage, but it's a, it's, it's a much higher than, than, uh, percentage than you would be comfortable with that of, of kids who have been uh, expelled from, from more than one preschool. You know, even at age four and five, they've they've been you know they're on to their third or fourth preschool because 
uh, of expulsions. So that's certainly an indicator of behavioral impairment. In terms of the academic domain, there's a number of studies that have shown that uh, even uh, upon kindergarten entry, uh, children, young children with ADHD are already behind uh, their peers uh, with, with regards to both reading and um, math skills. Uh, if we go to the next slide. Thank you. Uh, I'm, for some reason, I'm not able to control the slide, so if you're able to do that for me, that would be great. Um, in terms of diagnosis of, uh, of ADHD in preschoolers, the, uh, the, the diagnostic procedures are very similar to what is done for older children. Uh, and the, the primary methodologies include a diagnostic interview as well as rating scales that are completed by parents and teachers. Uh, and this is, you know, very similar to, to what is done with older kids. Um, in particular, with the diagnostic interview with parents, we're, we're obviously focused on the DSM-5 criteria for ADHD, but, but also wanting to get information about uh, po possible comorbid disorders, uh, as well as disorders that uh, could mimic uh, ADHD, and, and in particular, two disorders that we, we pay a lot of attention to with this age group when we're interviewing parents is oppositional defiant disorder, or, or ODD, um, because that, uh, that, there's a frequent overlap of ADHD and ODD uh, in this age group in particular. Uh, in fact, our, uh, we did a fairly large study of ADHD preschoolers a few years back, and, and we had 75% um, of our uh, ADHD preschoolers also met criteria for ODD. Uh, so it's a frequent uh, comorbid relationship there. Uh, the other disorder that we want to focus on with parents, uh, given this age range, is uh, autism spectrum disorders and, and you know, developmental uh, disorders, uh, which could co-occur with ADHD, but uh, also, uh, more importantly, could um, uh, mimic uh, ADHD in terms of the concentration problems, impulsivity, and uh, high activity level. So we want to make sure that we are, in fact, dealing with ADHD and not a developmental disorder or uh, autism. Uh, parent and uh, teacher rating scales are, are a core component of the diagnostic workup, and we, we like to include um, both a broadband uh, behavior measure like uh, the BASC, the Behavior Assessment System uh, for Children, um, uh, and then more of a narrowband uh, scale that focuses specifically on ADHD and externalizing disorders like the Connors. Uh, and, and similarly, uh, that combination is useful for getting information from pre preschool teachers as well. And the nice thing about these particular measures is they have uh, normative data for uh, the preschool age group, which is, which is critically important, uh, as we'll talk about in a minute. Um, if possible, uh, we also try to get direct observations of child behavior, um, either in a clinic setting, uh, under analog conditions, having them interact, for, for example, with their parents around uh, both play tasks and, uh, excuse me, play activities and uh, more structured activities or tasks, uh, to look at the degree to which the uh, child and parent um, uh, get along with each other, but also uh, the degree to which the child complies with parent requests and, and how the parent responds to, uh, to child behavior in terms of a positive reinforcement versus um, uh, punishment. Uh, also, direct observation of child behavior in uh, preschool settings can be very informative uh, in terms of some of those same issues, but uh, also 
um, giving us kind of a local normative context for the child's behavior where we can compare the child's uh, attention activity level uh, to their peers in the same preschool classroom um, to, to see the degree to which they stick out um, or are, are different from, from their peers. Um, and this is, this is particularly an issue where you might have a concern that uh, the behavior difficulties are due to uh, more of a chaotic uh, preschool classroom environment where the teacher may not have uh, full control of the classroom uh, or, or may have inconsistent management um, skills. And so you want to gauge the degree to which um, uh, that may be playing a role in what might look like ADHD. And then finally, as I mentioned to you previously, uh, we, we want to rule out developmental disorders, including autism, um, and, and that we would do uh, through uh, both the diagnostic interview with the parents as well as um, uh, rating scales, relevant rating scales. So now uh, if we could go to the next slide, uh, we can talk about the challenges that um, one might experience in terms of diagnosing this disorder in early childhood, and there there are certainly a number of challenges here uh, that need to be contended with. One uh, uh, fairly major one is that, as I'm sure you're all aware, the symptomatic behaviors that comprise ADHD, namely inattention, impulsivity, high activity level, pretty much describe every three-year-old. If you if you you know if you just take it at face value, um, it's a description of childhood, early childhood. Uh, and so these are behaviors that are relatively common in home and preschool environments. So we need to um, make sure that uh, we're accounting for that in, in the context of our diagnosis, as I'll talk about in a minute. The other thing that, that is challenging is um, the degree to which children's behavior at this age varies uh, across time, across settings, across uh, uh, people who are taking care of them or working with them. Uh, there's just such high variability in their behavior that um, one needs to be careful that um, we're taking into account uh, behavior over a, a, an extended period of time and also looking at situational factors that might be accounting for the behavioral symptoms that don't necessarily represent ADHD but may represent differences in management style or differences in um, the quality of the, of the different environments. So those are two big uh, challenges uh, when we we're looking at three- and four-year-olds in particular. So for that reason, it's, it's really critical to establish several things. One is that we uh, want to establish that the symptomatic behaviors of ADHD are happening at a really high frequency relative to age and uh, gender norms. So this is where um, measures like the BASC or the Connors come into play, where one can look at scores on these measures relative to other three, four, and five-year-old norms uh, and identifying uh, kids who are at the, you know, beyond the 1.5 1, 1 standard deviations or more above the mean in terms of these symptomatic behaviors. So that's key. Uh, and that gets at that issue of the symptomatic behaviors being relatively common. Uh, secondly, um, we want to establish that the behavior is chronic. Uh, now, the DSM-5 suggests six months. Well, it doesn't suggest six months. It requires six months. Um, others have suggested a longer period of time, particularly for preschoolers. Uh, so, for example, Russell Barkley and, and others have suggested that uh, one needs to establish that the uh, symptomatic behaviors are occurring for at least one year. 
to to really uh, show that that uh, the behaviors are chronic and and um, are happening you know on a consistent basis over time. Uh, thirdly, we need to to establish that uh, there's impairment that it's not just the behaviors that are occurring, but uh, also that there's some impact, particularly in terms of social uh, or academic uh, uh, functioning. And so measures that tap into social skills and um, uh, early reading and early math skills are going to be very important as part of the diagnostic workup uh, in order to establish that there is impairment. And then finally, um, as I've mentioned several times, we need to rule out uh, other hypotheses for the behavioral symptoms, in particular rule out the role that autism or other developmental delays or disorders might, uh, might play. So then uh, if we go to the next slide, uh, we can look, uh, talk briefly about treatment of uh, ADHD in young children. And again, similar to the diagnostic uh, protocol, uh, the treatment procedures relative to ADHD in young children are fairly similar to uh, the treatment approaches for older children and, and uh, even adolescents um, with, in particular, two, um, <coughs> the two uh, uh, most strongly empirically supported interventions for ADHD being behavioral interventions implemented at home or school and then psychotropic medication, in, in particular uh, central nervous system stimulants. Um, so just to briefly talk about each of those, the behavioral intervention piece, uh, most of the research here with young kids is focused on parent education, family education in the use of behavioral pr procedures at home. Uh, and there's been a number of, uh, of empirical studies that have supported uh, this approach. Um, uh, for example, Carolyn Webster Stratton's work with the Incredible, uh, Incredible Years um, uh, series, um, and uh, uh, there are there are others as well, but Webster Stratton's work in particular is notable here. Uh, and clearly that is a primary treatment approach for ADHD in young kids. And in fact, arguably, it is the first line of treatment for ADHD in young kids, even before medication. In addition to the behavioral interventions, it's really important to work with parents and preschool teachers to support the development of early reading and math skills uh, beyond what you know would typically already be in place for a young child. Um, as I mentioned to you previously, these are kids that are at risk for uh, coming into school behind their peers in academics, and so it's really important that th those skills be supported. So for example, uh, strategies such as dialogic reading, or embedded uh, math instruction uh, where you're, you're uh, exposing uh, children to mathematics principles through everyday activities is really important. Uh, I, I want to make sure that I contrast that with a notion of, uh, of extended drill and practice and uh, forcing kids to you know, practice skills uh, at a high rate uh, in this age group is really not developmentally appropriate and, and also can backfire in the sense that uh, kids could get really turned off to uh, academic um, activities by being, you know, forced to to, to drill and, and practice. Uh, what I'm talking about are, are more uh, everyday embedded activities uh, that include reading to children on a frequent basis, and then discussing math in the context of uh, just everyday uh, everyday activities. Uh, thirdly, it's really important uh, to to focus on injury prevention and safety promotion. Young kids with ADHD are at much higher risk than their peers 
for uh, accidental injuries due to their high level of impulsivity and activity, um, higher rate of emergency room uh, visits, uh, higher uh, rate of uh, broken limbs, uh, accidental poisonings, uh, things along those lines. Uh, so it's really important that families uh, uh, act proactively to, um, to prevent injuries, to prevent ac accidental poisonings, and so forth. Uh, and then finally, psychotropic medication certainly uh, can play a role, uh, particularly for those with really severe uh, symptoms. Uh, and the most uh, famous uh, work that's been done on this that you may be familiar with is, is called the PATS study, P-A-T-S, which stands for Preschool ADHD Treatment Study. Uh, it was conducted uh, about 10 years ago or so now, uh, the largest uh, medication trial with young kids with ADHD. And the good news found that um, stimulants, primarily methylphenidate, uh, reduced symptoms of ADHD uh, both at home and preschool to a, a significant degree. Uh, and um, uh, so that's the good news. The, the not-so-good news was that uh, the side effect frequency in this age group is higher than for older kids. And uh, uh, in particular, there are concerns about uh, growth uh, inhibition. And uh, the PAT study did show some reductions in the velocity of uh, weight gain and, uh, and height gain uh, that would have been predicted without medication. Uh, and as a result, um, some of the families uh, of kids in the PAT study itself, uh, where there were positive effects with stimulants, uh, despite that, they chose not to continue with medication following the research because of the concerns about side effects. Uh, and it's also important to note the American Academy of Pediatrics issued uh, treatment uh, guidelines for ADHD a few years ago, and uh, they strongly recommend uh, behavioral interventions, as we were talking about earlier, uh, that those should precede medication use in this, um, in this age group. So anyway, hopefully that gave you a, a, a quick uh, rundown of some um, major concepts with regards to what ADHD looks like in young children, how we might go about diagnosing it, some of the challenges associated with that diagnosis, and then a general discussion of treatment strategies for ADHD in young kids. Um, so at this point, I'm, I'm open to any questions uh, that you may have. Well, thank you. And we do have questions. They have started coming in. And again, if you have questions that you would like to ask Dr. DePaul, you can submit them now in the question box to the left of your screen. And our first question is actually coming from several of our viewers today. And they are wondering, how young is too young? You mentioned a moment ago the American Academy of Pediatrics has some guidelines. What age, when we're talking young child and diagnosis and assessment, how young is too young? Um, I don't know if there's a cut and dried age where too young. I, I certainly am very hesitant to um, to diagnose um, ADHD. Certainly younger than age two. Uh, in fact, I've never uh, done that in, in my career. Um, between age two and age three, uh, it also is very challenging uh, for some of the reasons I, I mentioned earlier in terms of uh, uh, the the type of that that these behaviors are basically descriptive of this age group, and uh, so it's very difficult to identify somebody even between the ages of two and three, although certainly I have run across a handful of kids in my career where it was fairly obvious that they were outside the range, well outside the range of uh, expected behavior in that, that age group. When you start getting into uh, age three and four, um, uh, we have the methodologies really to do that, I think, in a, in a very reliable and, and valid fashion. 
provided that we, you know, are taking into account some of the challenges that I mentioned to you earlier. So how young is too young? I would certainly say younger than two to me would be um, – I've just never done that. Done that. I'd be hugely uncomfortable to do that below the age of two. And then between age two and three, I'm still very uncomfortable. But uh, under certain circumstances, um, with the right data, uh, could make that diagnosis. Okay. Thank you. I think that's very helpful. One of our other participants, she has a, another question. Her uh, pedi her son's pediatrician is. Inter is uh, suggested that her son, who is three years old, may have ADHD and is trying to uh, have a diagnosis through the evaluation. And she's saying that her son does not really have significant behavioral issues. And she's wondering what she what should she do? How should she respond to the doctor in this regard? So I, uh, I guess I want to make sure I understand the question. So the question the question is that the child's physician is suggesting the possibility of ADHD. However, the parent is not, um, is not seeing those behaviors or not seeing those difficulties. Is that, is that the nature of the question? Yes, that does seem to be the nature of the question. Um, the parent is saying that her son doesn't have significant behavioral issues, but the doctor is saying this looks like this may be uh, an instance of ADHD. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty unusual circumstance because most most cases, uh, physicians are responding, particularly with this age group. Physicians are responding to parent report of um, you know significant difficulties related to possible symptoms of ADHD. Uh, so I'd be curious in that instance of um, getting more information from the physician as to why he or she is um, is is questioning the, the presence of ADHD? Uh, is it based on their, behavior, their uh, observations of the child's behavior during um, physician visits? Is it, uh, are they getting information from another source, preschool teacher or some other source that would indicate concerns? Um, it, it just seems to be a fairly unusual circumstance. If, if the parent is not observing significant difficulties at home, uh, it would be pretty unusual for a child to get the diagnosis of ADHD in this age group. I've certainly seen that happen, and I've been part of evaluations where we've done that for older kids, where, you know, the symptoms are, are uh, quite alive in the school setting and, and muted at home. Uh, but when we're talking about three- and four-year-olds, five-year-olds who aren't, you know, um, in elementary school yet, uh, it would be really unusual to go forward with a diagnos diagnosis of ADHD without parents reporting significant symptoms. So I would really question the doctor more thoroughly in terms of what, you know, on what basis is he or she reaching this conclusion and, um, uh, and perhaps providing e even more stronger uh, uh, advocacy from the point of view of the parent that they're really not seeing difficulties at home. Okay. Thank you. I think that's a, a good way of, of addressing that issue because it is a slightly unusual one. Usually it is the parent that brings the question to the doctor. Yes. Well, our next 
Our, our next question now is coming from Sarah. And you mentioned earlier that the primary mode of intervention is to begin with uh, behavior management, behavioral treatment. And Sarah was wondering if you had any suggestions for how parents could go about finding a behavioral interventionist or a behavioral therapist to work with a young child. Right. So uh, that's always a, a challenge, um, uh, particularly in, in um, uh, geographic regions that, uh, you know, outside of large cities and so forth, um, sometimes it's difficult to find a behavior interventionist or behavior therapist. Uh, a couple of things to think about. One certainly would be through um, uh, the local, if there's a local CHAD uh, support group, um, very often the local CHAD support groups will keep a uh, resource directory for parents of um, psychologists and other mental health professionals who work with uh, families with ADHD in the area, uh, and, and that could be very helpful in terms of identifying folks who might be able to provide behavioral support. Uh, the other um, organization to look at is there's an organization called the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. It's ABCT, uh, and they have a uh, website, abct.org. Um, where um, you can go to that website, and I believe they have a directory of behavioral therapists uh, who, uh, you know, by region, by location, uh, and that directory will indicate, uh, the, the practitioners on that, that directory will indicate their relative areas of practice. And so one would search for uh, behavior therapists who uh, practice with ADHD, uh, with the ADHD population. Um, and, and that's definitely an organization where um, uh, practitioners who belong to that, clinicians who belong to that, uh, will typically be well-versed in uh, behavioral strategies. So I think those are the two primary ways that I would, um, I would try to go about it, the local CHAD support group that, that might have a resource directory and then um, uh, the ABCT organization. And the, the other thing that you could do also is, ask your child's physician or pediatrician. Sometimes they are going to be aware of who in the community provides uh, behavioral intervention support. Well, thank you. And again, if anyone, if you are interested in finding a CHAD chapter, you can find those on the CHAD website at www.chadchadd.org and look underneath the resources tab. And we have our listing of chapters for each state, and we also have a listing of professionals who've made themselves known to us, so we have a professional directory that you can take a look through. Well, our next question comes from Alice, and she was wondering, um, when, and when should a parent think about explaining to their child that they have ADHD? And, you know, again, in a way that is age appropriate for a young child. That's a really good question. I, uh, I, wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't suggest getting into ADHD per se with three and four-year-olds or five-year-olds. Um, I, I think that the approach that, that I've typically taken um, with early elementary school kids um, has been to talk about strengths and weaknesses and discuss how... Um, you know, everybody, every individual, whether they're a child or an adult, have uh, particular strengths and specific weaknesses. 
and that uh, in their case, uh, they have strengths in a number of areas, and you would go help them identify what they're good at and what strengths they they have, and uh, be encouraging to to be you know to think broadly about those things, and then also help them to think about you know some of the areas that they might have uh, more challenges or or have some weaknesses, and um, and talk about how the the weak the combined weaknesses of of um, you know problems being uh, problems paying attention and focusing on things and maybe sometimes acting quickly without thinking uh, that that combination of weaknesses can um, can you know lead them into having some difficulties at home or or at school and help them think about some of the instances where that happens and that um, uh, the good news is that um, first of all they're not alone there are many kids that and and adults really that have that uh, difficulty and then secondly uh, that um, you as a parent and and uh, their teachers are going to work together to try to help uh, the child to um, to address those weaknesses to, uh, to 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 work on them and that it's you know it's going to be a long haul uh, but we're all all in it together and um, uh, that, uh, that that you know again that we have some good ideas on how to help them uh, I to be honest with you I haven't really done that too much with young kids with three and four year olds we've really focused on uh, more you know very specific situational factors to 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 identify rather than a broad-based discussion of um, of certainly of ADHD or or, th- or, or the behaviors that uh, comprise it but uh, you know without early elementary kids uh, first and second graders uh, I found that that discussion of strengths and weaknesses to be very successful in helping them to understand this and really don't get into a discussion of ADHD as a disorder uh, until the kids are older, you know, uh, later elementary school and, and beyond, so that they're, you know, equipped to really understand it. Well, thank you. And I think that's a good approach. It is a question that we do get frequently here at the National Resource Center on ADHD. Well, our next question now comes from Lori, and she has a four-year-old son who has been diagnosed with ADHD, but her son is also very difficult. He can be destructive and aggressive, and he has some sensory issues also going on. And she was wondering, after behavior therapy and behavioral intervention, are there any medications that have been studied in young children who have anxiety or aggression that have been effective? So we're talking along with ADHD, co-occurring anxiety and, and aggressive tendencies. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, that's not, uh, not, not uh, all that uh, unusual uh, for a, child with, a young child with ADHD to also be aggressive. Um, that's, you know, so, so certainly uh, practitioners in the community are going to be familiar with that combination. The challenge is that we don't have um, substantial research on uh, that combination in terms of, of medication therapy uh, in young children. Um, with older children, you sometimes see the combination of uh, stimulants with um, medications such as uh, uh, clonidine, which is uh, marketed as catapress, or um, um, uh, 10x, um, where that, that combination of a stimulant with a clonidine or 10x uh, can reduce aggression 
in, uh, in older kids. Uh, I don't believe there are any specific studies of that combination of, of drug in young children. Uh, doesn't mean you couldn't uh, approach that or potentially engage in that, but uh, we don't really know what the, that, that combination of medications does in that age group, and, and, and we're not also, because there's not, no research on that combination, we're not sure what the side effect profile would be either. So it would have to be done with caution. Um, so unfortunately, uh, we don't have a lot of research base to, to work with there. Um, the, um, I, I'm assuming that in this case they haven't tried stimulant medication. Um, if that, that hasn't been tried yet, uh, that, that certainly would be uh, a first approach beyond the behavioral procedures to, to introduce a stimulant to the mix because it could be that the combination of a stimulant with a behavioral intervention could not only help with the ADHD, but also reduce the aggression. Um, but um, um, short of that, unfortunately, we don't have a, a, a substantial research base to really guide our uh, choice of medications with this age group. Okay, thank you. And it, it is a, a very important question, and as you said, going uh, slowly and steadily in finding the answer and working closely with the doctor. Well, our next question now is coming from Justin, and he has another medication question for us. Uh, he was wondering, how long do you, how much time, how long do you go working on the behavioral management before saying this is not working, we should do a medication trial? Or should you try a new doctor, new practitioner first before moving to that medication trial? Uh, another good question, and, and there's no, you know, there's no real cut or dried answer to that. It, it really does depend on the circumstances. Um, certainly, in the case of, um, you know, kind of typical behavioral intervention, parent education, and, and uh, follow through on behavioral interventions, those um, those treatment approaches typically are implemented for at least several months uh, before one would. Um, you know, decide whether they've been uh, significantly helpful or not, uh, because it does take some time to uh, build up the skills in implementing them and also uh, take some time for it to have an impact on the child's behavior. Um, and, uh, but beyond that, um, you know, I guess some other questions that might come to mind is uh, if the... Um, Procedures are not feasible that are being suggested. Uh, they're not feasible for use in the home. Uh, maybe trying to work with the behavior therapist to identify uh, things that, are, that, that may be feasible. Because uh, sometimes what I've seen is that behavioral interventions don't work because the parents or teachers are not able to implement them consistently. Uh, and so, therefore, it's not a failure of the uh, strategies themselves. It's, it's the fact that there's um, uh, uh, some roadblocks for the parent or teacher to implementation, uh, and a lot of times that may be just because of uh, time or or uh, resource uh, issues that there's not enough resources to implement the strategies. And I think it's important to work with the therapist to identify, you know, what are the barriers uh, to the treatment implementation if that's an issue. Um, if it's a case where you know the strategies have been tried and they've been tried, you know, faithfully for uh, a couple of months or beyond. 
then you know then I think uh, the question about medication becomes more um, more pertinent, more relevant, and I think it that is helpful to talk to a physician then at that point to say, um, you know, here's what we've tried. Uh, it's you know helped in some ways. It hasn't helped in, in others. And uh, we're interested in talking with you about the possibility of uh, medication. Um, so, so again, it really depends on the circumstances. And, and I think before jumping to that point, one would want to at least give it a few months. And then one would also want to make sure that the strategies are being implemented pretty faithfully, pretty consistently before giving up on them. Well, thank you. Uh, now we've got a question from Susan, and uh, um, pardon me, our next question will be from Susan, but this one is from Judy. And she was wondering if you could give some specific examples of behavior interventions. You've, you've mentioned this, your previous answer, you were talking about, about these interventions. What would those be? What would they look like? What could a parent do? Sure. So um, uh, the, the way we kind of organize our um, the, the behavior management strategies that we work with parents on is is in several different uh, categories. So one of the things that we think about is w what can we be doing uh, proactively before a challenging behavior occurs to reduce the probability that the challenging behavior will actually occur. So for example, if we know that uh, when we go to the uh, grocery store uh, with the child, that the child will... Um, uh, when we get in the grocery store, they, they run around, they don't stay by our side, they uh, touch um, objects on the shelves to, and, and sometimes knock stuff over, or they bump into people in the um, uh, uh, aisles, or maybe they um, beg for uh, candy or beg for other um, items that f for the parent to buy them, whatever. So we know in advance that when we go into the grocery store, challenging behaviors are going to probably occur. So what we do is we work with the parents to think about, all right, what can we do before we get to the grocery store uh, to reduce that probability? Um, so one of the things we'll do is talk to them about when you get to the store, you review prior to ent entering the store, we review the rules, uh, you know, stay, stay close, don't touch, uh, don't beg. You know, so it's like three or four very simple rules. And then identify for the child if you're able to, to follow those rules, uh, mom, mommy will be really happy, daddy will be really happy, and uh, we'll get to do, you know, some nice thing together or, you know, we'll get you a treat or something along those lines. So there's a positive reinforcer that's associated with it as well. And then once you get into the store, you're, um, you're laying on the praise, you know, almost immediately that they're following the rules, that they're staying close, they're not begging, they're not touching, uh, and, you know, do that frequently throughout the uh, grocery store trip. Uh, so the idea here is kind of a combination of thinking ahead um, as one category of behavioral strategy, thinking ahead and planning ahead, and then the other category being um, making sure that we are taking a positive approach and, and praising and reinforcing um, the, the following of rules or the following of, uh, of instruction. The other um, uh, type of strategy that we uh, take, particularly with this age group, is to focus on... Um, on communication and, and uh, instruction in communicating one's needs. Uh, there, there, there are certainly many instances where kids engage in challenging behaviors be, to communicate a need. Um, so, you know, they want a toy that somebody else is playing with, so they just grab it out of the child's hand. Or um, they don't want to sit down at dinner, they prefer to keep playing, and so they keep playing, they ignore the parent asking them to come to the dinner table. 
Um, so what we try to focus on is helping parents to help their children to verbalize their needs rather than engage in challenging behaviors. So, so in the instance of uh, wanting a toy, to be able to say, you know, please could I uh, borrow the toy um, for a few minutes and, and um, uh, you know, so using verbal behavior rather than grabbing it out of a child's hands. And, and then um, uh, as children exhibit these um, uh, verbal communication skills to reinforce those. So uh, when they use their, their words to ask for something, um, it doesn't mean that you automatically comply with, with every verbal request the child makes, but you try to, to, to positively reinforce those as frequently as you can um, so that they learn the distinction that, um, that the way to get your needs met um, is, to, is to verbalize your needs um, and that they won't necessarily get met every time you verbalize, but, but very frequently they will. Uh, versus uh, if you act out or you, you behave in a way that's inappropriate, you're not going to, uh, as a way to communicate your needs, that's not going to get reinforced. Um, the other uh, thing, of course, is a, is a focus on uh, reinforcement just at a, as a general principle, uh, and we will work on um, trying to, uh, to change the dynamic. A lot of times the dynamic in the family is uh, negative, where the child's behavior is uh, you know, being punished frequently in terms of, you know, child's being yelled at or reprimanded or uh, punished in other ways um, on a frequent basis. And, you know, that's easy for parents to fall into that trap because their kids are, are difficult to manage. You know, it, it doesn't mean that they're, they have poor parenting skills. It means that they're uh, in a situation that's very challenging and uh, typical parenting strategies aren't going to work. So, in those situations, one has to really uh, lay on the praise, lay on the positive reinforcement at a much higher level than in a typical family uh, because uh, of the challenging circumstances. And, uh, but we're trying to change the dynamics from a punitive uh, interaction between parents and kids to uh, more reinforcing. So, so we're uh, helping guide parents to uh, use of specific praise. We're, we're helping them to identify use of uh, reinforcing activities uh, following uh, compliance. So, in other words, when the uh, child complies with uh, a command or request, that there's some positive uh, outcome for the child in addition to praise. Maybe they get access to something they enjoy for a short time. Uh, maybe they're, they're able to do something a little bit later in the evening that they enjoy. So it's tied to a re reinforcer or reward. Um, and. and it's, it's kind of a combination of all these things where you're planning ahead, you're teaching communication skills, you're reinforcing positive behavior. It's that uh, a more comprehensive protocol that we, that we emphasize. Oh, thank you. Um, well, our next question, as promised, comes from Susan. And she was wondering, how do you respond? What would you suggest a parent do? When another parent says, oh, the child will just grow out of it, when it's another parent, another family member, oh, they'll just grow out of this behavior, and yet there is a diagnosis of ADHD or a likely diagnosis. Mm, another excellent question, uh, and that's an opportunity, obviously, to educate uh, a relative or a friend about ADHD. And I guess I would suggest to do that in a, in a non-defensive way, to say, you know, that's basically, you know, that's what I would have thought before I learned more about uh, ADHD. ADHD, uh, and what I've learned about ADHD is that it does tend to be chronic. Uh, it does not uh, tend to be outgrown by most uh, kids. And um, it would be nice if that were to happen. 
but similar to uh, you know diabetes uh, or uh, you know other uh, quote unquote physical illnesses or chronic physical illnesses, uh, ADHD is a, um, a disorder of the brain uh, that uh, the child may have inherited or acquired in some way, and um, that it's not likely to go away. Uh, and for that reason, uh, we as parents have to focus on uh, trying to support our child over the long term. Uh, and I think if, if the individual, you know, persists in saying, well, you know, I read something on the Internet that would suggest that this is all um, a myth and so on and so forth, I, I would suggest uh, letting them know that there are um, reputable websites that they should check out, like the National Resource Center uh, or CHAD uh, or uh, the National Institute of Mental Health or, or other organizations like that that have uh, very accurate information about ADHD that would suggest otherwise. And to remind individuals if they're getting their information from the Internet or other uh, sources like that, that, you know, that one cannot always trust what one reads on the Internet. And, and, and I'm sure every individual could come up with other areas where they've come across um, uh, stuff that is, is just baloney on the, uh, on the Internet, and, and that's true for ADHD as well. So, so, you know, the general approach would be, you know, in a non-defensive way to, to say, you know, look, I, I understand where you're coming from. That's what I thought about ADHD before I had a child that was diagnosed with this condition. But I've, you know, I've done a lot of reading about this. I've had a lot of support from professionals that would suggest otherwise. And um, if you're interested uh, in this, here, here are some websites to check out, and I'd be more than happy to talk to you further about it. Well, thank, thank you. Well, we've got a question now from Charity, and she has a child in daycare, and she was wondering how can she get her child's daycare providers and, and preschool on board with her child's behavioral needs? He has an ADHD diagnosis, so how do how get the daycare providers to be part of the solution and follow the behavioral management? So, okay, so it sounds like they have, they have a diagnosis and, and maybe even a plan that they're implementing at home. Sounds like from the nature of the question that that may be the case. Um, I think, you know, I would approach it as, as um, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a very straightforward fashion of, of, you know, first of all, requesting a meeting with the relevant teachers and, um, and maybe bringing some materials uh, from um, whatever professionals this uh, family is working with, as well as maybe from the web or, or any books or other resources they have, and coming to the meeting and saying, you know, um, we want to really uh, work with you to, um, to address my child's uh, difficulties. I know that he or she's having some difficulties in uh, the daycare setting, and uh, we, want to, um, we want to share with you some things that have been helpful at home in, in managing his behavior, and we think they could be helpful for you as well. And um, here's some of that information. Uh, how how can we go about working together? And so, just kind of communicating the desire to uh, to partner with them uh, and to um, uh, be very open about uh, what has worked and what has not worked at home. Uh, and you know, also saying you know we understand that the daycare setting is different uh, than the home, and you know it may not be exactly the same thing that's going to work here at daycare that works at home. But we want to give you some ideas that we've found helpful and, and then maybe talk to you about how could we implement some of these uh, at daycare and how can we help support you uh, as a daycare provider to do that. So, you know, trying to build that uh, relationship in a positive way 
what you want to avoid is coming in like uh, gangbusters with, uh, you know, I, we have the answers here. Uh, we, we know what we need to do for our child, and, uh, you know, you, you need to do this. Um, that may be very well be true, that you know what's best for your child and that you have uh, the plan that will work. But if you come in in that way, it's going to put the daycare folks on defensive and they're going to be resistant uh, probably just very naturally to that. So you want to come in uh, from a collaborative uh, uh, standpoint and um, uh, you know, suggest that, that we can work together and that here are some ideas to share with you. Uh, what do you think might work? How can we help support you in, in implementing these things? Well, thank you. Following up the preschool question, we have a question now from Zach, and he has a child who has ADHD, and he was wondering, is there a benefit to holding his son back in kindergarten, doing kindergarten uh, two years in a row, to, to give his child more time to mature? We know that kids with ADHD tend to be a little more immature than their peers as part of the nature of the disorder. So is there a benefit to holding a child back in kindergarten, or is this something that could backfire on a parent? Yeah, that's, a, that's also a very excellent question. Um, it, 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 in general, retention uh, is not a great idea. Uh, the, 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 the literature on grade retention, whether it be kindergarten or later in school, would indicate that the, uh, the only time that retention really is beneficial, uh, by itself anyway, the only time that it's, that it's beneficial is if the child has missed a lot of school. Uh, due to illness or other reasons that they've missed, you know, a substantial amount of instruction or um, school time. And that doesn't sound like that would be the case in, in this case. And if you're waiting for maturation to address the issue, it's, it's, that's really not going to um, make a big difference. And, in fact, could um, backfire in the sense that the child may interpret the retention um, as failure and uh, also may be hurt by the uh, idea that his or her friends are moving on to first grade and beyond, uh, and they're back uh, in the same situation. And uh, so socially, it certainly does not enhance, uh, typically does not enhance the social status of these kids, and these kids are already at risk for um, rejection by their peers and um, uh, you know, had struggling to make friends, and, and this does not set them up in any way. Um, the key thing, I think, that, that I would suggest they would focus on is what can be done, uh, assuming they get promoted to first grade, what kind of supports can be put in place in first grade to ensure that, um, that the child has a better year? Um, and, and I would wonder, you know, has the child been considered for uh, Section 504 accommodations um, as, a, you know, an individual with disabilities uh, because uh, students with ADHD can qualify under that, uh, or if they also are, you know, in need of special education, um, you know, one could, could request uh, an evaluation re related to that uh, where an IEP or individualized education plan is put in place. But even without those formal, you know, accommodations or IEPs, uh, one would want to work with the school in terms of um, touching base with the first grade teacher as early as possible, maybe even over the summer, uh, to strategize on how um, uh, the child's difficulties c can be managed in the first grade classroom. Um, there, you know, in that, under those circumstances, now the child is still with their age mates, still with uh, the friends they've made in kindergarten. 
uh, does not see uh, school as a, as a place of failure uh, and is getting the proper support, hopefully, um, as they move on you know, to the next grade level. Thank you. We've got several of our participants who are wondering if you could elaborate just a little bit more on some age-appropriate behavioral strategies, maybe a couple for home and a couple for school that parents can share with the preschool teachers. Behavioral strategies are very important and very much an interest uh, for our participants today. That's great. That's great to hear. Um, uh, let's see. What uh, For the preschool... Um, situation, it, you know, it's, it's kind of the same uh, major framework that we, we try to work with teachers to think about uh, what can be done proactively, uh, what can be done to help uh, children to communicate their needs in an in a age-appropriate way, in a, in a more behaviorally appropriate way, and then uh, thirdly, the category of reinforcement and uh, uh, consequences. And uh, so what we will do uh, is try to focus in, help teachers to think about, okay, what are the primary situations where the challenging behaviors are occurring, and to focus on those first. Uh, we're not going to try to address behavior <coughs> through the whole uh, school day. We're not going to try to address, for that matter, uh, behavior at home across every situation. We're going to prioritize one or two situations first, and we're going to look at each category of intervention that I just described uh, in each of those settings. So, for example, uh, circle time can often be a challenging time for uh, students in, uh, with ADHD in a preschool setting, and that's where preschool teachers, like reading a book to a small group or um, engaging in a singing activity or uh, a movement activity or a discussion with a small group of children, and kids with ADHD often have trouble you know, staying uh, uh, still, um, uh, waiting their turn. Uh, and then following through on what they're supposed to do. So what we would do with the preschool teacher is to say, okay, let's, let's identify, you know, two or three things that we want the child to do during circle time, and right prior to circle time, take the child individually, remind them of, of those, maybe have uh, decide on some cues, some nonverbal cues, finger movements or head nods or uh, an eye wink or something like that would, that would signal to the, the, the child that they're uh, starting to deviate from the rules. Uh, but also, more importantly, uh, praising the child uh, as they uh, engage in uh, the, the appropriate behavior. The other thing, the other specific strategy we'll use in that situation is something called pivot praise, where um, uh, the teacher will identify, um, let's say that the child with ADHD starts to uh, get fidgety and is moving around a lot, maybe calling out without permission. What the teacher would do in that instance is praise the students that are following the rules very specifically, you know, Johnny, I like the way you're sitting still and listening and waiting your turn, and then maybe going through a couple of other students' um, names and, and praising them specifically with the hopes that the child with ADHD will then comply, even if it's for a few seconds, where they stop what they're doing and, and pay attention. Uh, and then you pivot at that point. The teacher pivots to that student with ADHD and praises the fact that they are now um, sitting still and paying attention. Uh, that's that's a we found that's really effective strategy in group situations in, and particularly in preschool that that use of pivot praise. So again, basically, it comes down to the use of you know pro proactive strategies, strategies to help uh, promote um, uh, appropriate communication, and then um, the use of positive reinforcement and consequences uh, relatively immediately following uh, appropriate behaviors. 
Well, thank you. We have one last question. And this has come from a couple parents who are hearing something that uh, research doesn't bear up. But they are wondering if there are any studies, if there's any information that says that too much screen time is a cause of ADHD. They're, they're hearing from family, from friends, from others saying, oh, your child has ADHD or your child doesn't have ADHD. They just need to stop watching so much TV, stop being on the computer. What would you say? Is there anything that you can offer them to say to those who might be suggesting that ADHD is caused by excessive screen time? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it, it, um, uh, there, there are even researchers who believe that, <clears throat> unfortunately. Um, it, um, uh, it, it, it's a fairly common idea that is out there in the, in the community. And I don't know whether you're going to fully convince people. I've kind of given up on trying to convince the world of, 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 of you know, the truths behind ADHD, but uh, to the extent that they're willing to listen, um, I think that uh, one can talk about the fact that all of these studies that purportedly show that TV uh, viewing or other viewing causes ADHD uh, are not experimental studies. They're not true experiments, and without a true experiment where one would actually randomly assign kids to different levels of screen viewing and then monitor their ADHD symptoms over time, one cannot definitively prove one way or the other that screens, screen time causes ADHD. All of the studies that have been conducted on this have been correlational, meaning that they've just looked at the association between the amount of screen viewing and the uh, number of ADHD symptoms. And some of these studies have found a correlation between those two factors, but that could be for different reasons. It doesn't necessarily mean that the screen viewing causes ADHD. Uh, it could actually be the opposite. It could be that kids with ADHD, um, because they um, uh, are, you know, have a lot of challenging behaviors, that parents may, um, may choose to have them watch more TV than other kids, or um, uh, because they're engaged by that, because they pay attention to that, they slow down a little bit, uh, or seemingly slow down a little bit as a function of that. Um, the, the th it also could be a third factor. could be that, you know, that, that a third factor that's related to both the screen viewing and the ADHD that's causing that correlation. Um, so it could be that, um, uh, um, you know, that, that uh, I'm trying to think of what the third factor might be in this case, but um, uh, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that you, the response would be that there really aren't any experiments showing that there's a causal relationship here, uh, and in fact, it would be very difficult to do a causal experimental study on this, this uh, factor, and that there are much more, uh, much stronger research studies, some of which are, uh, have some experimental bent to them, that will sh that have shown that um, that ADHD is caused by physiological and genetic factors, and that um, that that is the, the primary uh, driver for uh, for ADHD symptoms, and that these other factors like screen viewing and so forth may exacerbate symptoms, may be associated with them, but they're um, uh, by no means causal. Well, thank you, Dr. DePaul, so much for your time with us today. At the National Resource Center on ADHD, we often hear from parents who are wondering if their young ch children are showing signs of symptoms of ADHD and what their next steps should be. I think you've addressed many of those concerns today, and I think this has been very helpful for our audience members. 
Well, you're welcome, and, and thank you all for, uh, for being interested in this topic and, and for participating today. Thank you. Thank you. For our audience members, we hope you've enjoyed this presentation. Please take a moment to send us your feedback through the survey that will appear on your screen at the end of this webcast. On Tuesday, April 14th, we are welcoming Dr. Jerome Schultz again to discuss what, pe what professionals need to know, say and do, helping children understand their ADHD. This is a special webcast with guidelines for professionals. You can register now at help4adhd.org or on the CHAD website at chad.org slash asktheexpert. Thank you again for participating with us today, and we hope you enjoy the, the rest of your day, and hope that you will join us again in our future webcasts.